On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about Aberdeen Avenue. Changes are coming to the traffic on Aberdeen. It's a pilot project. What does it mean and is it going to help or is it going to hurt? Some people say it'll be the latter. We'll talk about that one. We're also going to be chatting about dinosaurs. Stick with us, you'll understand. And we are going to break down who in the world of sports has the worst possible job going forward. We have a very specific answer for you. Who has the worst job in sports? We'll answer that question too. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Soon, Aberdeen Avenue, I'm assuming most people know where that is, runs underneath the escarpment from the highway to, I don't know, St. Joe's, roughly James Street, something like that. Uh, It's going to look different from what it does today. At least it's going to behave differently. Because soon, parking is going to be allowed on the two outside lanes. There's four lanes now. Two of them will now allow parking, or will very shortly, reducing the road's capacity to one lane each way. Yes, this is going to slow things down, theoretically, probably. Yes, this is intentional. Part of the plan is to make the streets safer, since some say it isn't right now, and that is by protecting the sidewalk with cars and by slowing down the flow of traffic. One of those people who is very much in favor of the plan, she's written a piece for The Spectator. You can find it online outlining why she supports this plan is Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson, who joins me now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Good evening, Scott. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. Uh, this is a um, This is an interesting one because there are a lot of streets in the city of Hamilton that over the years people have pointed to and said that street's too fast or that street's unsafe or whatever else. Why Aberdeen? Why do this here with this particular street? Uh, Aberdeen has been the subject of much community angst and study uh, for years that predate my time here on council. As early as 2015, the community got together and identified it as a priority for um, some calming and uh, the need for a diet. Uh, We have over 600 kids that cross uh, Aberdeen Avenue uh, at least 10 times a week going to our our various um, schools in the area. Um, We also know uh, on a professional measure uh, that it is almost five times in terms of its safety concern, it it's, uh, it doesn't meet the threshold of, of safety. So it's uh, it's in need of some attention. And so what we're doing, as, as you have identified, is uh, we're allowing a very modest bomb, if you will, to enable parking on both the north and south side um, for part of the street from Dundurn to Queen. And I'd like to add that, in fact, we are just building on the experience of Aberdeen Avenue, which you pointed out runs all the way to James Street South. So we're building on the experience of Aberdeen just east of Queen, between Queen and Bay, which is the key connector between the mountain access and our downtown, which for many, many years suffered from high speeds and cut through traffic. And so the Duran neighborhood, our our next-door neighbors, Uh, They mounted a defense and they successfully sought and achieved the narrowing of that part of Aberdeen from two one lanes to um, just one line lane having permanent bump outs. Um, They added stop signs. They added cement medians at the other end of James to try and address the cut through traffic. And they have been successful. So uh, the folks in um, on this part of uh, Aberdeen are are hoping uh, to achieve the same results. 
do you see this? Because again, as I go back to my first point, and uh, there are a lot of streets that have been pointed to in the city. I mean, the, the intersection, apparently the intersection that say King and Dundurn is the most dangerous one in the city. I, that was as of last year. I don't know if it still stands, but there's others. Is this, do you see this as a test project? Let's see how Aberdeen does when we do this and then expand this to other streets in the city, or is Aberdeen unique? In terms of um, what is being, uh, what we're going to be doing for Aberdeen, it is absolutely a pilot project. And the value of pilot projects is that they enable our professional engineers um, to work with the community and with me to see, okay, how did this how did this work? Were there any, any unintended consequences? And then they take that information as they have been doing since 2015 and they continue to make the adjustments necessary to make it safer for all users. And when I mean all users, I mean drivers, I mean walkers, and I mean everyone in between. But in particular, uh, certainly our most vulnerable user and, and that would be our children. One of the points that has been made, I think you made it in your piece in the spec today. I know if you didn't, I've heard it elsewhere because I know it's front of mind right now, is that the cars are driving along here and the people on the sidewalk are at risk because the cars are not far away from the sidewalk. And if a car loses control, it could slam into someone on the on the sidewalk. That is That's clearly true. But is that not also the same with every street that has sidewalks in the city? Well, there are some parts of, of Aberdeen, particularly at the West End, that enjoy um, a, grassy, a grassy boulevard. So that provides that, um, that buffer of both distance and time for pedestrians. Uh, the, the part that I am speaking of, primarily from Dundurn to Queen, doesn't enjoy that. So you have four lanes of uh, rapidly moving traffic um, beside a key migratory pathway, uh, whether you're going to Westdale Secondary, whether you're going to um, Earl Kitchener Elementary School, St. Joseph's Elementary School, or whether you're going to uh, one of the a few daycares uh, that are in and along um, Aberdeen, whether you're going to Temple, whether you're going to St. Joe's Catholic School uh, Church, whether you're going to any a number of places of worship or our library, you're having to to navigate that street. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting with Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson, who has written a piece. You can find it at thespec.com. Traffic calming measures will make Aberdeen Avenue safer. We've just heard this is a pilot project of sort, project of sorts. We're going to see how this works. Different things are being done along Aberdeen Avenue to see if this is going to make areas safer. Councillor, I want to ask you about two things that I'm sure you've heard these debates or these arguments before. These seem to me to be the two leading positions that those who don't love this idea are taking. And we'll start with this one. Um, When you park cars on both sides of a four-lane road and reduce it to two lanes, it's going to create horrible, horrible traffic, especially on an arterial road that is bringing people down from the mountain into the city and onto the highway. What about the traffic? Sure, I can understand that concern, but <clears throat> I think it's um, it's it's rather a myth. So, for example, we know that um, some people call it the Queen Street Hill, some people call it by its formal name Beckett Drive. That, that's the hill that goes up. 
It it has um, more volume. It carries more volume uh, of cars than Aberdeen. Um, Russo Avenue, some people call it Mohawk, that goes into Ancaster, uh, carries about 4,000 additional cars per day than Aberdeen, and it's two lane, one lane in, one lane out. Um, that that community is not calling for an, uh, an expansion of laneway throughout any part of Ancaster because they know when you provide more lanes, you're going to get um, higher speeds. And it's not friendly to a community. It's not friendly to property values. It just does not make for a good environment. Um, this same um, uh, action was taken but under the leadership of Sam Marula in Ward 4 on Kenilworth. Um, in partnership with Tom Jackson, who was then the Mountain Councillor of Ward Six, um, and it was and Kenilworth um, overall has more volume of cars. And what they found through that work was that it in fact slowed the traffic down by about 10 kilometers. Um, it did not impact um, uh, the community negatively. Uh, so it has proven to work. Um, when you make the adjustments as you go along, um, and there is certainly proof by the streets that I have mentioned that there are a number of streets out there serving our city, uh, which are two lanes only that carry a, a considerable more volume of traffic than Aberdeen. Is there, as a follow-up to that, is there anything built into this new plan that would allow for the situation to be changed. And the reason I, I ask that is things like, for example, um, snow clearing may become very difficult if you have the two lanes blocked and then you've got a snowfall and you can't clear the snow or those circumstances where, and we see this, I don't know, five, six, 10 times a year where you get a big accident on the 403 and things are backed up to Brantford and Aberdeen becomes an exit ramp to alleviate the pressure from the 403. And if you have two lanes that could become I mean, a further nightmare. Are, are there are there ways, are there days that are going to be all four lanes open or is it always going to be like this? Well, let me just say, when any, when any traffic initiative is put forward, it is always reviewed by a number of commenting agencies. So uh, EMS, waste services, um, our, our snow clearing uh, staff, and they have to make sure that they have the turning radius, that they have the ability to do what it is they do so well. And this plan is no different. It was reviewed and checked and approved um, by all of those agencies. And so I guess um, I think that needs to put on the table. And uh, regrettably, I was stuck on um, uh, the, the link going into Ancaster, Russo, about a week ago, as was the entire uh, 403. <laughs> um, and that just happens sometimes. I mean, it's really unfortunate. But again, you don't see um, our good neighbors in Ancaster clamoring uh, to add additional lanes either on Wilson or uh, most of Russo to accommodate that unfortunate um, occasion where we have an accident. And I guess I would give the equivalent of do you stock your fridge? For Christmas, 365 days a year? No, you can't afford it. And in fact, the more lanes we have, uh, the more it costs money to operate, maintain, plow, salt. So 
So it's sort of analogous to that. You, You don't retrofit your home for that two days. You retrofit your home so it suits you more often than not the majority of your days. Maureen, we only have a few seconds. I wish we had a lot more time. It's a really interesting topic. But this other one, again, the answer will have to be short, unfortunately. What about the concerns that there are going to be people who get fed up sitting in traffic and start bolting around in the back streets to try and get where they're going, which creates problems then in the in the side streets? Yeah. So uh, truthfully, we have that now in Kirkendale. We have uh, people who, for whatever reason, want us to drive safely in their neighborhood but it, when it comes to driving safely through our neighborhood, they don't seem to put a premium on it. But again, this is a pilot project. This is to um, traffic engineers. I know you want a short answer, but it's really important. Traffic engineers since the 1960s have known about something called induced demand. Whereas when you make roads too many lanes and large enough, uh, you will attract traffic. So traffic is not like water. Traffic is like gas. It will fill up any space you give it. The more lanes you add, the more those lanes are going to get congested shortly after you build them. This is about induced demand and taking on induced demand for the entire Ward 1, entire lower city, including Kirkendale, to make it safer and better to live. Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson, go read her piece at thespec.com. It's worth reading. You can agree, you can disagree, but you should absolutely be aware of what she's saying, and you've heard some of it here. Really appreciate taking a few minutes today to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you have ever gotten in your car and headed towards Guelph on Highway 6. Those of you who did the Ticat games for years or just for whatever reason, you're heading up through Millgrove that way. Uh, You have seen the dinosaurs. Yes, I said dinosaurs. If If you're tuning in right now on satellite radio from somewhere far, far away and you're thinking, did he say dinosaurs? Yes, he said dinosaurs. Um, Again, if you're around here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those who aren't, I am not smoking something I did say dinosaurs. For years, these giant dinosaurs have been peering out from Flamborough patio furniture, but maybe not for much longer. I want to bring in Gilles Fortin. He is the owner of the business, who is the owner also of the dinosaurs. Gilles, how are you today? Oh, everything's fine. Excellent. Now, listen, I am I am not a, uh, a business person, and I am certainly not a patio furniture salesman, but generally, dinosaurs don't have a lot to do with patio furniture. Well, no, but it has to do with uh, my relations. So what happens to me, my travel up in the Quebec area, and uh, I got this crazy idea. My grandson was three years old. I said, hey, we got to give him something different. A surprise for, uh, for, you know, something to remember for his life. So I bought him a dinosaur. And and when and how long ago was that? Oh, I bought. It, I think it was nineteen ninety three. Okay, and you put up and and what was it? Was it as big as the ones you've had? It was a giant dinosaur you put up right there. No, the long neck one. Uh, I don't I don't even know the name myself. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I know it's uh, fifty five feet up in the air. Right now, it's not anymore in the air because the storms that keep taking them down. Okay, so when when the day came now in nineteen ninety three when you bought the first one. 
Uh, was it great timing or was it something well-planned that that was the year of Jurassic Park? So everybody got into dinosaurs. Was it a complete fluke or was it well-planned by you? No, it wasn't well-planned. I do stuff like that uh, instantly. If I just decide to do something, bingo, you going to get it done. Otherwise, I'm going to forget about it. And that's how I do it. Okay, so you decided in 93 to bring in this dinosaur. What was, now? I mean, you're out in the country a bit, so not everyone is right next to you, but when you put it up, what was the reaction of the neighbors or the people around you? Well, the neighbors were not so much because I live close to a oil company, but uh, the reaction was spectators were there, everybody here was there, and then all of a sudden, uh, my workers decided to be like a Flintstone, we had to build a car, Flintstone cars, dress up in Flintstone suits and all that stuff. It was fun. And I'm guessing lots and lots of people stopping to take pictures all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. That's, that is uh, for sure. That's, uh, they come in and take pictures and they stand up in front of it. And, uh, you know, I don't mind it because it's nice. It's something you could see the people finally around the area have something to, to look at. Once again, when this first started, when you got your very first one there, do you remember some of the comments that people had when it first went up? Did it, was everyone saying, why is there a dinosaur here? Yeah, but well, do you sell dinosaur shells? Yeah, I sell dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> and I do too. <laughs> do you? Yeah. The, the, like those ones? Yeah, yeah. I like the T-Rex. We have a T-Rex at the gate. I saw some in New Jersey. I saw some in, in Ontario here in, in, uh, in Gravenhurst and all those places. So, you know, I don't have no problem to selling anything anywhere. Did you mind or do you mind when people stop to take a picture or pose with it, even if they have no intention of buying anything? No, I don't mind. Uh, you know what? They look at a dinosaur and they also look at my uh, business. So when they look at my business, I got people, actually I've been uh, a couple of years ago, I've been in uh, Rochester, New York. It was, just happened to stop in a grocery store, or not grocery store, but a variety store. And he says, uh, they look at my truck and says, you open every system in Hamilton? Yeah. He said, that's where the dinosaurs are. I said, yeah, that's where we are. So, <laughs> out of nowhere, you get stuff like that. So, you, you started with one. How long did it take before you decided one was not nearly enough? You had to get a second one. Well, the, the long neck one is the one that I got uh, afterwards. Uh, the long neck one was uh, uh, Cineplex in Quebec, Quebec City. They had that long neck one for a long time, and then all of a sudden they wanted to get rid of change their scenery. And then I got an offer on it. I said, okay, I bought it. And it cost me $25,000. But you know what? How many people had a lot of fun, take pictures from Germany, from all over the world on that? It's, it's nice to see. Plus, it shows my business as well. You said these were coming from Quebec. How do you get a 40 or a four-story dinosaur to Hamilton or to Milgrove from Quebec. With two, with two tractor trailers, two flatbed tractor trailers. With the dinosaur visible driving along the street? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Ca causing every accidents every all along the way. Yeah, every once in a while I go on Quebec and there are friends of mine that are still making stuff like that. And right now I got horses and deers and all that stuff. And I'm driving on the 401 with that load and... You should see how many people take pictures and they comment, slow the traffic down beside me and all that stuff. It's actually fun to see. You know? Well, I'm sure. And as I say, if, if it's if it's getting you notoriety, if it's getting you fame down in Rochester and everywhere else, I mean, people are clearly noticing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We have uh, people up in, in, Rochester, in uh, 
what they call this place in Buffalo there, where that where the skiing area there, and they know uh, they know all about me because they travel in Canada back and forth. They they the ski areas. They go up north here and and the, the ski as well. We go down there as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about dinosaurs, the ones that you see when you drive up Highway Six. I was going to say right around the Naturist Park. <laughs> For those of you who use that as a guideline, but I, I'm guessing probably the dinosaurs stand out more than any nude people on the side of the highway. Gilles Fortin is the owner of Flamborough Patio Furniture. He is the man behind the dinosaurs. And Gilles, over the years, uh, let me go through some of these things. I understand that some of your dinosaurs have been decapitated over the years. Yeah, the, 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 the long neck. I don't even say the name, but anyway, uh, three times. Every time there's a big storm, uh, like you know, the choo, the wind takes them down. <laughs> and you come outside, and the neck, the whole head is on the ground. Yeah, the head is on the ground, hanging down. So we take it out and get call the boys over to get a repair back up again, and away we go. A couple of times they uh, they sort of patch it up, and then he fell down. The last time they did some wiring with it, and it lasts a bit longer. And then this time it broke somewhere else. So it's uh, it's fiberglass. Don't forget it's fiberglass, and if you uh, that thing's about 52, 54 feet up in the air, and when the wind picks it up, you, she shakes it. Yeah, no kidding. And and I, you know, there are not a lot of people that can work with fiberglass. I don't know. You're not. Are you a fiberglass repair guy, or you say you have to bring people in? No, no. I bring the people that uh, that build it in the first place. They know what they were doing, and then, well, they're sort of friend of ours anyway. So, but they came up and from Quebec, all the way down from Quebec, and put a crane up there and fix it up, and away we go. Yeah, there's not a lot of people who have dinosaur repair on their business card. <laughs> you can't find that on yellow page, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> okay, so you've had the heads fall off. You've Have you ever had them stolen? No, the only thing I have stolen is a tusk on an elephant. Uh, what's the story? Someone stole a tusk from an elephant. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know why, why and what reason. Why it is not a real elephant, so... Uh, it was not made out of the, the ivory, whatever you call it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one morning I get up there, the tusk is gone. <laughs> well, maybe we somebody reward, thought. We put a reward on it, and it's just for the fun of it, a couple <laughs> hundred dollars, and nobody showed up. So did the elephant eventually get a new tusk, or did you just leave him as a one-tusk elephant? Yeah, one-tusk elephant until we got a new tusk. <laughs> well, um, other customer, than the... One customer bought it that way with one tusk. He says, really, oh. you got to get me a, a new tusk. I said, okay, no problem. We'll get you one. Other than the neck breaking off, do any of the other ones, do they ever break? Has anything ever broken with them? No, no. Everything else is pretty well uh, stands up. I mean, don't forget, the only thing that one guy, he was 52 feet up in the air. So exactly. He was, He's all by itself, so up in the air, looking at the wind, right? Do they, other than fixing them, if they do break, do they require any kind of maintenance? Have you had to paint them over the years, or do they stand up really yeah, well to the Canadian yeah. winters? The, the T-Rex I have right now at the gate right now, yeah, they're also the storm. The first, I don't remember the name of the storm. Anyway, they picked it up and moved it sideways, and uh, because it was anchored. It was also anchored in the slab of cement, and so he had to be repainted and remodeled. So they came up and remodeled the dinosaur and we put it back there and away you go. Right now, he's got no teeth. Nope. <laughs> Everybody keeps uh, picking at the teeth. That's a souvenir, I guess. I don't know. Well, so do people come to the store? Now, they come to buy patio furniture, but do people ever walk up and say, I want to buy one of your dinosaurs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they all want them all the time. 
We have and you, uh, we have fuel all over the place. If you look down in the behind me, about a mile behind me, there's a uh, flea market that has one of my dinosaurs. So everybody has a reason to do it. I had a car dealership up in Woodbridge. The guy wanted the T-Rex in front of his place to attract people. I don't know where you go. It works, apparently. We oh, yeah. know about you. Oh, yeah. They got, uh, if you drive down the Managua Fall there, there's a winery with uh, a moose on the sign. Moose, moose winery. You've probably seen it. If you pay yep. attention on the way down there, you'll see it. There's a big sign of a moose on it. It came from us. What you've recently said now, and this is what got us talking to you today, that um, it may be time to um, to get rid of the herd altogether, to sell off and uh, move into retirement and have the dinosaurs go back to extinction. Um, <laughs> well, I have a little lady beside me. She pushes me. She says, you're 70 years old. How long are you going to keep that going? Well, so far I'm healthy. Uh, I had the heart attacks in 45. I'm 45 years old. And now I'm still, I'm 70 years old. I'm so healthy. Well, I love the business, and that's a, that's a nice part about me. But if you could sell it, y- you would move and leave. And do we, and do you have any idea what would happen to the dinosaurs? Would they go with you, or would they just be sold to whomever? No, we sold to the business person itself. I mean, this business right now, I'm looking for people to buy Flamborough or part of the whole land, and I'm hoping that they're going to keep Flamborough value furniture going, and. And it's a landmark, right? I mean, there's not too many places around here that you could say there's a dinosaur sticking around. That is absolutely fair. That is absolutely fair, Jill. And uh, listen, congratulations on all the years of doing it. And I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Well, no problem. That is Gilles Fortin. He is the owner of Flamborough Patio Furniture. You probably don't know his, his name. There is, I think, a reasonable chance you didn't even know the name of the store where that dinosaur was. But I guarantee you, if you've driven up that highway, even if you are not really paying attention, if you're half dopey and you're sleepy or whatever else, if you've driven that highway, it's impossible to have not gone, wait, there's a dinosaur. That's, that's, there's your story of why the dinosaur is there. There's the story of why the dinosaur is there. He's not some sort of dinosaur fanatic or archaeologist, just a guy who had friends who owned a dinosaur and thought it would be a good idea. And eventually, I think he had seven of them at one point, not so much anymore. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson as we carry on this hour. Don, the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty the mower of great swaths of lawn, the enjoyer of high humid temperatures and situations and a variety of other things in the great town of Dundas. How are you, sir? Good. And I'm not, uh, not a fan of the humidity and high no? heat, but you're right. But I did cut my grass. Uh, Finally. The acreage. Yep. Uh, Remember Saturday you- for the first, first time in six weeks. Hey, you know what? The warm weather can, uh, can be positive for that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I remember the, speaking of humidity, I remember years ago when David Letterman was funny before he became all political and just, you know, the elder statesman of TV late night when he was still doing hilarious stuff when he was on NBC and he did a competition on the streets of New York for Mr. Humidity. <laughs> and they just took a camera and tried to find the guy who looked like he was most affected by humidity and dragged him into the studio and put a sash and a tiara on him and <laughs> played the music. <laughs> it's like, all right, you know what? That guy will go through the rest of his life as Mr. Humidity. 
He's a big husky guy, likely that wasn't enjoying it much. Uh, I would, th- yes, that clearly your description is exactly right. And, uh, I believe he left a puddle on the floor as he left <laughs> from perspiration. <laughs> and you know what else I wanted to bring up this dawn, August 24th is national waffle day. And the only reason I mentioned national waffle day, the CNE should be open right now. If things were normal, we would have the CNE open in Toronto. There is no better food on the planet than the things they make at the CNE with the hot waffles and the slice of vanilla ice cream in the middle. Every year at the CNE time, that's the first and only thing I think about. Well, and the CNE, Scott, seemingly started to become famous after I started attending because that was a pretty big deal for for a kid from Linden to go and see a fair that big, was every year they had something new deep fried. And I remember hearing about the deep fried pickles, which now are quite common. But they were they were famous for some outlandish uh, new deep fried thing that they would sell and it would either take off or would be nothing. But they always had some crazy food that they were selling at the X as well. I remember, remember so... In recent years, yeah, the Alpine, yeah, the ride there. In recent years, they had the deep fried pickles. They had the deep fried Mars bars took off after that. They had right. deep fried Kool-Aid, which uh, was interesting. And last year or the year before, they had deep fried butter, which I thought that sounds disgusting, but apparently it was fantastic, although I don't really understand how. Nonetheless, well, I, I, the, the waffles are... Butter and bacon. You're well, good. if it was deep fried bacon, yeah, absolutely. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Just anything bacon, deep fried bacon wrapped in bacon, sprinkled with bacon and covered in bacon bits would pretty much be the perfect food. Surrounded by butter. With a waffle and ice cream. Yes. (laughs) So uh, I want to ask you about this. I'm assuming you are still keeping your eye on what's happening with the NHL playoffs, though I said today to someone, it's becoming harder. I was really beginning to enjoy those afternoon games when you could turn on the TV anytime, day or night, seemingly, and there was NHL hockey. I thought that was a great thing, and I hope they'll figure out how to extend that and make that a regular part of the playoffs, kind of like March Madness. Nonetheless, uh, you were probably still watching, and you probably noticed last night how the Vegas Golden Knights did against Vancouver, which was they slaughtered them. And Vancouver had been looking pretty good. And all I could think about, Don, when I was seeing the outcome of this game is, I think the person on planet Earth who is the most screwed of anybody is going to be the general manager of the Seattle Kraken. Because when you're the expansion team after the Vegas Golden Knights, how do you possibly succeed? Well, George McPhee is a veteran guy. He's now uh, uh, Brad McCrimmon's taken over, but he'd been around a long time, right? And they they set it up and said, if you're going to pay us, I think it was five hundred million U.S. We're not going to make we're going to make sure you're not the Washington Capitals and win seven games your first year because at the very best pick you get is our fourth line guy in the American League. They used to, National Hockey League used to absolutely screw expansion teams. And this is the first time they didn't. And they let them build a competitive team. As we all know, they went to Stanley Cup Finals first year. And they have depth and they had draft picks. So, uh, but the bar you're right is set very high. 
Now, I don't know, but presume that the, uh, the, the entry draft or the expansion draft will be the same setup that Vegas had to follow or had an opportunity to exploit. Yes, but. but you're right. Even, but, even if it is, holy crap, you can't, like, Vegas are very good. But, Don, even if it's the exact same scenario, the other teams have now seen what Vegas did and how they manipulated that draft and took advantage of it, and they're not going to be snookered again this time around by Seattle. These are smart guys who no, run teams for the most part. No, you're right. Some, some, of, the, some of the NHL teams, some of the guys gave up way too much. I mean, they were giving up first and second round draft picks to leave this guy alone. Like, you know, you're going, the, for example, use the Leafs, who think they have a number of outstanding young players. There were NHL teams giving up draft choices to leave Mitch Marner alone, use him because it's an easy name for people to recognize. You're right. They won't get, snooker's a good word, they won't get caught again in that trap. But most of them had to. Now look at Pittsburgh left Mark Andre Fleury open. I mean, he's but that was intentional. Playoff. Yeah, that no, and that was intentional that he would get taken by them. And I think that was, if I recall correctly, to get rid of his contract because they because Pittsburgh had to had to get rid of his contract. But you've got well, you've now got these teams that some of them have lost really good players plus draft picks, as you say. They've been embarrassed, some of these guys. And I think what's going to happen now, I mean, what's made Vegas really good is, A, you're right, they picked some good players, some appropriate players. Like, they got a good mix to have a good team right away. But they also got a million draft picks that they were able to use as as capital to make other trades or to help themselves down the road. I don't think Seattle is going to be able to get nearly the number of draft picks. Teams are going to say, you know what, take who you want to take. I'll live with it. Just take who you want to take. Well, and, and, and in fairness to the other general managers, they now have history on their side, right? Because before yes. they weren't quite sure, and now they're going, holy crap, if it, if it rolls out like it did last time. And these guys, are like, they won the West the first year. So guys are going to have to say, we can't protect guys we think are great and give up these draft choices. We're going to have to, you're right, we're going to have to, if you want them, you got to take them. They're going to have to expose some guys that are pretty good hockey players. And Vegas did very well to start with. But if you think back, and if you think Vegas passed on a couple of guys on a couple of teams and got draft picks for it, how bloody good would they have been if they hadn't backed off on, well, throw Mitch Marner out you know, rather than to leave Mitch Marner alone and take uh, Scott Radley and a second-round draft pick or a first-round draft pick, how good would they have been if they had taken all the best players? Because they backed off on some good players to build draft picks. Yeah, the the the, the only thing is some of those guys, it, you, they would have put them in a spot where they were in salary cap hell from the moment they started, which is what you don't want to do because they didn't know they were going to be as good as they were. Um, they had no idea. They think we're building for the future, and all of a sudden the future becomes year one. And, and look, I, I, there's a guy... Gary Lawless, who former, he's a Canadian writer from Winnipeg, was a very good writer for the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, had his own radio show, worked on TSN. People probably remember seeing him on TSN talking about the CFL and the Blue Bombers. He left TSN, left Canada to go down and work and be the media relations guy and color commentator for the Vegas Golden Knights. And I remember having him on the show, asking him, like, how in Vegas, when it's a trillion degrees, 
are you going to sell hockey with a team that's going to absolutely stink? And this was before the draft and everything else. And look, I was wrong. I was clearly wrong, but I think almost everybody else was wrong too. And he was trying to defend it as best he could because he worked for the team. But Don, there was nobody that thought this team was going to be remotely what it was. And that's my long way of getting to the point. Ron Francis, who's now the general manager of Seattle, it's not just that he has to build a team. He has to build a team with everything he does being compared to what happened in Vegas. There is no possible way. Now, I could be wrong again. I just said I was wrong the first time, but I don't think I will be. There is no way he can hold up to that comparison. Okay, so here, here are some of the advantages that George McPhee in Vegas had. Is First of all, there wasn't an awful lot. There was, there was far less gambling in picking a player that you've scouted and watched play for two or three years, and that would be still considered a young guy, versus drafting a guy in the first round, right? So the first couple rounds, you better be getting some good players. There are more mistakes than there are sure sure things in the, in the NHL entry draft. So it wasn't like they were given uh, the five first picks in the entry draft. They had an opportunity to analyze and see what kind of a pro these young guys could be. That's a huge leg up every general manager in the league would like to have, right? Let me see what this, instead of deciding what a teenager's worth and what he can be, let me take a 24-year-old or a 22-year-old, and they got to build their team there. It was almost, in retrospective analysis, an unfair advantage to all the other teams. You're right, Francis has to do it, and... Heaven forbid that, you know, he he has to replicate what was there. But based on on everything we've seen, nobody thinks they're going to be a bottom feeder next year. Um, I don't know. I don't know. They're, I'll put it this way. Their uniforms are going to sell well. <laughs> They've got very yeah. cool uniforms. Um, I mean, my other point on this one is that if you look at Ron Francis's track record as general manager of the Carolina Hurricanes, which he was before. I don't believe he ever even made the playoffs, and that was with an established team. I just look at this and I go, man, I I don't... Ron Francis was an unbelievably fantastic hockey player. I don't really like the over-under on three years of Ron Francis as GM of Seattle, because I I just... I say, I think the the bar is set way too high and his track record is way too low. I, I just, I can't see how he can make this work to a level that will be a fair or at least a, a, a complimentary comparison. Well, I'd have, if, and, and they didn't even call me, if you can believe that. I am uh, shocked. I'd have, take, I'd have taken Brian Burke. Uh, love him or hate him, I love him. But he's won a Stanley Cup. I mean, that had a bigger, heavier, tougher team. And... St. Louis did it last year. I mean, his style's different, but the experience that he could bring and the people he could surround himself with, and if it's not Brian Burke, it's somebody like Brian Burke, it's probably not Ron Francis, so I concur. You know, the other thing, and you just mentioned it, a little off topic for what we're talking about, but maybe not exactly. You said bigger and stronger and heavier teams. Look at who's left in the Stanley Cup playoffs right now. Vegas, Vancouver, Philadelphia, Islanders, Boston, Tampa, Dallas, Colorado. 
among them, not one team that loaded up on small, skilled, nimble, nifty players. They have some of those teams have some of those guys, but they are big, hard to play against teams. And, you know, if you're one of those teams around the league that's looking at this going, what's the path to success? You can say all you want now that, you know, we want to have skill in the NHL and we've opened up the NHL for more skill and we've cracked down on hooking and grabbing and all that kind of stuff. But clearly big teams and big bodies and teams that grind and hit hard and do all those things, clearly it still works. You need, you need, I don't know if I can say this in radio, we're going to find out. You need, you need teams with a bunch of guys with big balls because um, even if you're a small guy, if you're not scared and if you'll play hard, you're okay. But if you're quick and soft at all, you can be determined to be ineffective immediately. You can be intimidated. What those big teams do, they'll, they'll get some little uh, water bug flying around that's going to kill you. And then all of a sudden, a big defense will just drop a guy and take a two-minute penalty for interference. And they just body check the guy when the puck's not near him. And those guys start going, well, this isn't fair. This isn't in the rule book. The, so you need you need guys that will step up. You can have some small guys, but they better play big. Doug Gilmore is a great example. Like nobody intimidated Dougie Gilmore. He was a small, skilled guy. But there are very few small, skilled guys like Doug Gilmore around anymore. And you're right. All the guys that are left are are the big, strong guys that will. You know, it's almost like who's prepared to lose the most teeth to win a Stanley Cup? Uh-huh. You take a look around and you start going, okay, so I know why that team's gone. I know why that team's gone, right? Look at the Bruins. I mean, they're tough. There's- but it goes back to what I was talking about with Ron Francis and whether or not you could possibly succeed. Where Now, first of all, he should have a template because you know what works, but you now have to try and build a team that is going to be successful in the regular season to get you to the playoffs. And that's the real challenge because you can build a playoff team that doesn't do so well in the grind of the season because it's a hard way to play. Or you can build a regular season team that can fly around and score a ton and make it to the playoffs and then have no success there. You've got to somehow match those two sides of things. you got to get to the playoffs, which I think would be the first thing. you got to hopefully do well there. And you've got to do all of this with everybody nonstop, including you and me and everyone else, saying, well, look what Vegas did. Look what Vegas did when they had the chance, and now you haven't been able to do what Vegas did. My goodness, I, I just, I, I, if you could offer one job to one to anybody in the sports world, I would think that right now the least palatable job for anybody, I mean, there's only 32 NHL GM jobs, so you'll take it, but the least palatable job is going to be that one. I agree. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, it dawned on me this weekend that we may, in my humble opinion, I'm talking we, people around this area and people, frankly, around Ontario, maybe people around Canada are underplaying a story in the sports world that has a real local connection here. And that is what kind of unbelievable season Mackenzie Hughes is having on the PGA tour, uh, finished, um, what did he finish yesterday? Uh, tied for 13th, tied for 13th, I think. Yeah. Tied for 13th yesterday. 
uh, tied for sixth a few weeks ago, tied for third a few weeks before that, was second back in March. Hasn't won a tournament this year, but he has been in the mix week after week after week now. He is in contention. I, there's been a number of times that I'll, I'll check my phone and he's in the top 10 or even leading after a couple days. And I have heard little. I mean, certainly it doesn't help that the, whatever American channel is showing the PGA Tour seems to have some bylaw that refuses to let him be seen on TV. I, I don't know what that's all about. But um, I, this story, uh, I think his performance is now 36th on the FedEx Cup, which for those who don't understand the FedEx Cup is like the playoff system, is the points, the standings thing. Um 36th in the world. I, I'm I'm looking at this going, I, this is a story that I think is being heavily underplayed and deserves a lot more attention than it's getting. Well, I think the people that uh, follow golf and care a little bit, Scott, are following it, but I concur with you. Of course, I, um, I know Mackenzie Hughes, and he's going into the Dundas Sports Hall of Fame. That's been announced, and I nominated him. So I, I'm, I'm not exactly neutral on this thing. Like the local golf um, fans are following it, but I don't think to the degree that it certainly should be followed. I mean, this is an amazing accomplishment. Mackenzie Hughes is now the top Canadian golfer uh, from this country. Um, Adam Mm -hmm. Hadwin has done well. Nick Taylor has done well. I check it on my phone Thursday, Friday, Saturday to see how Max making out. Yep, Corey Connors right. is behind it, him, yep. Corey Connors, nice kid. Um, but Max, the top Canadian golfer on the PGA Tour, and it's not because he's 137th. You're right. He's in the top 50. He's in the top 40. And uh, there, there's not enough being done about it, as far as I'm concerned. He's doing well, now he's let wonderful. Me, let me say this, and, and for those who understand golf well and follow it all the time, forgive me for the next few seconds because you'll understand this, you know this, but there's some people that don't really follow it all that closely. And the way the FedEx Cup works, it's a playoff for the PGA Tour, and it's a series of progressive cuts. And tournament after tournament, depending on where you are in the standings, and you get points for your performances. So um, they had a field of 125 this last weekend for the Northern Trust. And so if you were one of the top 125 golfers in the world, you were entitled to play in that tournament. Next big tournament will be the BMW Championship, and 70 will get into that. Well, Mackenzie's clearly within that. And then the next one will be 30 for the Tour Championship, where they will decide the winner of the FedEx Cup. And so if he's in the top 30, and he's very close right now to those points, he'll be in there. And if you make it to that final 30, Don, it's a huge accomplishment. Think of how many golfers there are in the world. And you're one of those 30 who's playing for, what is it, a $10 million first prize if you win the thing? Um, yeah, the, bragging, the bragging rights are, are tremendous. The $10 million doesn't hurt. The $10 million doesn't hurt, although I, I would say that if you win that thing, um, probably in this country, you're not going to make $10 million in endorsements. I don't think that kind of money just exists for endorsements in Canada. But, you know, it's not the same as the Masters. There's nobody arguing that it's the same as the Masters, but we saw what winning the Masters did for Mike Weir. Yeah. And um, winning the FedEx Cup is not the same, and I'm not arguing McKenzie's going to win the FedEx Cup, but in time, you keep hanging around and you keep doing so well and you keep being the top Canadian, eventually people are going to notice. If he makes it to the final event, 
and all he needs is basically another weekend like he just had. And they're tough to do. He had four rounds in the 60s. He had a 66. Of course, Dustin Johnson blew everybody away. He was minus 700, I think. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He just took off. But, I mean, he, he walked away. He's world number one now. But if Matt can end up in the top 30 in, in the final event, that speaks volumes. And, Scott, there's something I want to bring up. Um, John Levy and his family have uh, been operating the SCORE television network and the SCORE app for years. They they jumped on and started sponsoring Mac when Mac went to his first U.S. Open. And you'll remember the date. I don't. I have a towel on my golf bag from him. I think but it was 2013 John, in uh, just outside Philadelphia in, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the course. It starts with Ameriden or, um, anyway. You went, ahead. didn't you? I did. I drove down, yeah. Yeah. Um, but John Levy and, and uh, the score, John's a Hamilton guy have been behind Max since he started. He started sponsoring him at that event. And kudos. So, I mean, I think, to me personally, it makes it even more special that his major sponsor is a Hamilton guy, and Mac is doing so well. So he, if, he, if he can pull off another great weekend like he did, and I'll tell you, that's hard to do week in and week out. You start. I took a quick look at the PGATour.com today, and Sergio Garcia, you should see the guys that won't play at the next event. Uh-huh. Pretty major names. And yet Mackenzie Hughes is 36. Uh, well, Phil Mickelson, Phil Mickelson won't be there. And uh, I'm just going through Will it Tiger right now very quickly. Tiger squeaks Tiger. in. He's in the 50s. He's in the 50s right now. Uh, no Ricky Fowler. Um, no, uh, no Brooks Kepka, No Zach Johnson. No Jordan Spieth. No Brant Snedeker. Um, no, the fact that he is, uh, no Graham McDowell, no Rory Sabatini, although that's a name that's probably more way in the past now. Uh, Charles Schwartzel, not there. Sergio Garcia, as you say, not there. No Jonathan Vegas. Um, we can go right down the list. There's just a ton. Uh, Danny Willett, or Willett, who won the Masters not that long ago. Um, no, it's, here's my, here's my theory. And, you know, it, and I think I'm right, although I'm not sure that it means anything. And I think that the fact that McKenzie has a very low-key personality and doesn't do anything to draw attention to himself, he just performs, ultimately hurts as far as having people really notice him. And I'm not suggesting that he suddenly go out there and start throwing clubs around and having temper tantrums or whatever else. I don't mean that. But th- the fact that he is not a wild and crazy guy on the course or does anything bizarre, I think that kind of hurts him. Well, since we shouldn't agree on much, uh, I beg to differ to uh, an extent that won't appeal to the U.S. audience. Um, Mac's not scared to throw a Leaf jersey on at the Canadian Open at the That's true. Um, at the hockey at the hockey hole, you know, where they have the rink set up. Wasn't yep. scared to throw a Raptors yep. jersey on. So Mac is as quiet and unassuming as he is, which is, to a certain extent, a, a quality some people like me should uh, take note of, um, is, is it's, you know, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a nice quality to have, but when it comes to attracting attention to U.S. networks, which cover these things, it's not doing them much good. They don't really give a damn if he's wearing a Raptors jersey or a Leaf jersey, but up here, he's a hero. I mean, we had a real McCoy's uh, golf tournament last year to, to fundraise, and I, I sent Mac, Mac a message and said, 
you know, we'd like to put something on the silent auction. We put it on the, um, so he sent us a golf bag. And boy, was it ever popular. So he is popular up here. We put his golf bag up on the uh, table, and it, and we had um, we had one, I think, from Dustin Johnson. And Mac, Mac won the day. I mean, everybody yeah, I, was interested in Mackenzie Hughes' stuff. So locally yeah, he I, is, but you're right. He, he's not. Uh, CBS aren't picking it up much. I remember a few years ago when... Um... And, and I mean, the local thing always helps and it's always, it's, it's always going to be a, um, a big deal. I remember a number of years ago with the B'nai B'rith sports celebrity dinner, the year that Kyle Quinlan was there in 2000, I guess it was January, 2012. It was right after Mac had won the Vanier cup for the first time. And Kyle was the star of that game and it was greatest game ever and all that kind of stuff. And there were other big, big, big name, major league athletes there. And Kyle Quinlan was the guy that had the longest lineup to get his autograph. It speaks to the the local bias for sure, and that's a good thing for Mackenzie. But I mean, I'm talking about things like remember back when he first burst on the scene, Camilo Vajegas, the way he used to line up his putts by getting down into like a really weird, almost yeah. lying down, and it was like it was stupid, and it didn't do anything, and I don't think it helped him line up a putt any better than the guy who just crouches and looks at it the normal way. But because it's batty and different and weird and everything else, it made him a guy that got all kinds of attention on tour. He never won much, but Mackenzie's, the knock on Mackenzie, if I have one, and and it's not a knock, that's not even the right word. The reason I think, part of the reason that TV ignores him by and large, and it drives me nuts that it does, but it does, that it ignores him so much, he just performs, but he doesn't do it in a way that is going to be crazy or wild or somehow attention getting he just performs well in fairness Mil- uh phil mickelson never did much other than win like he's like watching vanilla ice cream melt you know he's his personality's come out a little bit more in the last four or five years but he won but he was an american and i think that's your point yeah, that if like you're if Canadian, you're not American, if you're not American, you better do something that's going to get you noticed. Well, they don't they don't pump the tires of a whole lot of Europeans either, unless they're forced to. And if Mac can get into the final thirty, they're not going to have any any choice. Like they're going to have true. to talk about him. I watched yesterday, and the only shot of Mackenzie Hughes was squatting down to line up a putt on the 18th, and they didn't yep. even come back and show the putt. I mean, I'm going like, are you kidding me? Put that score logo on TV. Well, a few years ago, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, Don, what was the tournament that he finished third in, I think, and he hit those two putts on 17 and 18 that were something like 43 feet and 48 feet back-to-back holes, and they weren't even showing it live, and it was the the only got on there because how do you not show a 43 and a 45-foot putt? You kind of have to. Now, I... And he ends up third. Right, and he ends so. up third, and you still wouldn't. If watching American television, you would still never have known that there was a guy in third place, because I mean, Mackenzie Hughes was was was. I mean, they were hiding him. It was like he was in the witness protection program on TV. Like they were not going to show this guy no matter what until he did something you couldn't help but see. And again, I'm not arguing for him to change his personality or do something. But if he suddenly had a hit a bad shot and started hucking his clubs into the lake or or you know showed up wearing crazy golf 
pants or something like that. Like suddenly people go, oh, there's a guy we got to watch. Why do we have to watch him? Well, not because of his golf, but because of the peripheral stuff that he's doing. I would rather we watch guys who perform, but that's not really how it works when you're doing television. You want someone who's going to make a show of it. And, and, and Maybe. so when you're not an American and you're fighting for space on American television, uh, that's a tough one. Maybe you should start sleeping in his car overnight, you know, between, between rounds like John Daly did. Like those were huge stories. I, if America. I was advising Mackenzie Hughes, I would say, don't do anything John Daly did, <laughs> except maybe win the British Open. Otherwise, ignore everything John Daly ever did. Anyway. Or win the PGA Championship. John Daly won some huge tournaments. And he no, was, no, he did. And he's still dining out on that. Like he's, I've met John Daly. He's, he's, he is a character. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Jason Dalio used to bring him in. And uh, have the John Daly loudmouth golf tournament down at Thundering Waters, and Daly was there, and he was a character. He wasn't nearly as big as I thought he'd be, like they said, Big John Daly. Well, he was a husky guy, and uh, now he's lost all that weight. He quit drinking, but he's you know he he can pack away a deck of cigarettes in fifteen minutes. But he is he is a personality, and that's why they loved him. And you're right, he, you don't want Mac to turn in have to be John Daly to get noticed, but. It's not in his personality, I don't think. No, it's not at all. And, and you don't want him to. And by the way, John Daly was the third runner-up for Mr. Humidity on the David Letterman show. Um, no, he, uh, you don't want <laughs> McKenzie to change it because what he's doing is clearly working for himself and, and you can't go and start becoming someone else because it'll screw up what you're doing so well. I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that. By the way, John Daly's story, very quickly, got to take a break. Um, the year that the Canadian Open came to Hamilton first, I think, or at least in modern era, 2003. I think it was the 2003 year. It might have been 2006 because they were back right away, I think. Anyway, John Daly set up a trailer. Couldn't do it at the Canadian Open site, so he had it across at the uh, Montanas in in the... Ancaster, Meadowlands. In Ancaster, in the Meadowlands. He had his trailer set up and he was selling merchandise and, and I would drive by at night after covering the tournament and he would be basically having a party out with the stuff and then all of a sudden and i don't remember what the story was but something happened there was some sort of controversy briefly and the next morning the trailer was gone and john daly was in the wind and he was off doing wherever he was doing and uh but yeah he um i i, I don't know that that's what anyone wants mackenzie hughes to emulate but maybe just the winning <laughs> part you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml don i was reading on espn this last week that Nathan McKinnon is the greatest hockey player in the world. So says ESPN out of the States, which means that if you were a general manager, you would trade Connor McDavid or Leon Dreisaitl or Sidney Crosby straight up for Nathan McKinnon because he is the greatest player in the world. Would any general manager in the NHL make any of those three trades? None. None. I wouldn't. Anyway, I don't know, but they haven't given me that job yet, but that doesn't make any sense. Nathan McKinnon's a fine hockey player. He's not the best. Yeah, absolutely. No, there you go. I I was reading this going, okay, wait a second. Maybe this is why ESPN doesn't have NHL rights anymore. Um, That's that's why McKenzie Hughes isn't featured on CBS. But can I answer your question? No, well, actually, yes, you can, because you don't know the answer. And let me give the question again first and then see if you can get it. On this day in 79 AD, the city of Pompeii was destroyed when what volcano erupted? Don Robertson, do you know the answer? 
Well, first of all, it was only 12 at the time. <laughs> but I'm going to assume it was a big one. I don't know what they called it. Uh, yes, it was a big one. So your answer is the big one? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, that is technically incorrect. <laughs> the The correct answer would be Mount Vesuvius is the volcano that erupted and wiped out Pompeii. Ben, who knew Mount Vesuvius this evening? Tonight we had Frank, Edda, Zan, Sheila and Mark, Joe, Doris, Walter, Miriam and Ron, Joe, Steve, Mike the now-retired geography teacher, Wayne, Eileen, Sean, Ken, Bryce, Hugh, Angelo, Sophie, Jim the Fitter, Gino, Teresa, Sheila, Kayla, and honorary mention, Don Robertson. Well, honorary for being completely <laughs> wrong, but oh well. I'm not wrong. Uh, Come on. Yeah, that, that's a, that's right in the same way that Cliff Clavin's answer on Cheers when he's on Jeopardy was right. Do you remember that question? <laughs> when no, he wagered no, everything in Double Jeopardy, and they said, "What do I can't remember the names? What do Babe Ruth, Agatha Christie, and Abraham Lincoln have in common?" And his answer was three people who have never been in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> technically, technically, it was correct, but not exactly what we were looking for. Uh, Don Robertson, thank you as always for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Enjoyed it. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.